You're listening to the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. First episode of the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema's coverage of the Toronto International Film Festival. Um, I'm recording a lot of these episodes on solo, uh, simply because Vishnu seeing 45 movies and we couldn't quite mesh our schedules as well. Um, Spiros and Jim, who I also saw some movies with, uh, and for that matter, uh, Toronto Scott. Um, our schedules just didn't mesh. You know, life uh, kind of got in the way. I will, however, as the coverage goes on, uh, be recording some episodes with a good friend of the show, downtown Chris Brown, the uncool cat himself. We're going to be pumping off, I think, um, three or four reviews together, primarily, actually, in fact, exclusively Asian films. Um, But I guess the first thing I want to do is just kind of talk about the festival, a very brief overview um, itself. Uh, Actually, I should also note that I'm recording outside. I don't know if I mentioned that, but... Uh, I'm just recording outside uh, Victoria College um, here downtown Toronto, and it's been difficult trying to find either a coffee shop where it's reasonably quiet or outdoors where it's not windy and lots of noise. So apologies if uh, this sounds like I'm recording from a wind tunnel uh, or a bar or from the middle lane of uh, a highway. Um, I guess the first thing I want to say is is one of the big things that... um, TIFF, for uh, short form, has done is this year's finally seen the realization and opening of the TIFF Bell Lightbox, which is going to be the home of the Toronto National Film Festival. They're going to have a lot of great coverage as well as art exhibits and a lot of other things pertaining to film. Uh, I had a chance to go there uh, my second day of the festival with Scott, uh, Toronto Scott that is, um, and we had a chance to see the exhibit they had because essentially what they'd done is they had pulled quote-unquote experts, which is film critics. Uh, They had polled the public, which I had a chance to actually take part in, being a member of the public who went to the festival over the past few years, and they also polled directors. And what they had done was they had come up with a cumulative list of the hundred... You could see each list as well as the cumulative list of a hundred greatest films. And inside they had exhibits, uh, primarily consisting of a lot of posters uh, to do with a lot of these films. But there were also some... um, some things there that, that were on display outside of posters, such as Robert De Niro's um, taxi license from when he went to study to for the part of, of course, Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver. So that was reasonably interesting to see kind of that and, you know, uh, just to kind of geek out a little bit and see a lot of stuff that um, was going on. They had some other exhibits, one uh, that I believe um, Guy Madden had... Uh, uh, curated or whatever the term would be um, that consisted of a scene from Fellini's Eight and a Half uh, and he had kind of shifted the different perspectives onto white sheets and you could kind of see as everything was happening what the different uh, faces in the crowd uh, such as Anouk Amy and, and others when he was in the theatre uh, I think for the first screening of his film 
uh, how the reaction was from each of them. So anyway, it was a pretty interesting uh, exhibit nonetheless. Um, there's a lot going on over there, their film schedule over the next few months, and it really made me, uh, even further fueled the fire, made me proud to be someone that loves film in such a great film city like Toronto. So, yeah, I wanted to kind of share that with all of you. Um, but I guess the first thing then we'll get into in terms of film coverage was the first film uh, that I had the pleasure of seeing, and that is Our Day Will Come. This is a film from France, directed by Romain Gavras. Um son of Costas Gavras, who of course is a reasonably well-known filmmaker, fairly celebrated. Um, Gavras, of course, is known for his work, primarily up until this point, his music video work um, with MIA. Gosh, I can't remember the name of the video now, it escapes me. The one with all the gingers, uh, as they say. So, this was one that um, the trailer really kind of floored me. I, I hadn't heard anything about it uh, leading up to the festival. I do try to keep my ear to the ground uh, leading up to the festival to see what's going to be here, what's not, and in essence this was one that, the first thing I'd seen was a screenshot of uh, shaved-headed uh, Vincent Cassell, uh, as well as um, his, his young co-star, uh, whose name escapes me, and I'm also working with the benefit of the internet, so my uh, goldfish memory will be on full display here. <laughs> throughout my coverage until uh, at least the time when we record our Asian films because Chris will have his laptop. So, um, Cassell, of course, and this was one I also want to say I saw with Vishnu. It was my first film. He had seen, I don't know how many at this point. He's been going strong. You know, 45 films divided by how many days. He'd seen a fair bit already by this point. So, you know, it was my first film of the festival. Um, the big lure, obviously, is Vincent Cassell. I think he's one of the best actors working in, in the world today. Uh, we've covered some of his films on our shows. Um, for example, the Mayreen Double Deuce episode, and we've also featured uh, Enter the Void, uh, of course, from Gaspar Noé, who um, Cassell had collaborated with for Irreversible. So, really, uh, and also we did Brotherhood of the Wolf, I guess it should be said, uh, from Cassell. So, really, that was the lure. I mean, I think this is a guy that, that seems to kind of get it, that he kind of balances art and commerce. He takes some roles um, that are just kind of more commercial fare and then balances that with some really fantastic artistic stuff. So this is a film that, to give one just a, I guess a snapshot of the trailer, what had happened was you get this this kind of air raid uh, noise over um, over top of the trailer and it's intercut with um, a lot of dr dramatic kind of ominous uh, moments from the film, uh, violence, uh, and just kind of some really well-framed stuff that, that looks unsettling than perhaps it has a right to. Uh, for example, a bus full of redheads. Uh, just, you know, really bizarre things. So, essentially what this film is about is it's about two outcast redheads. Uh, and this seems to be a theme that uh, Gavras uses a lot. Uh, that is, of course, redheads as a fill-in for any group that's been um, marginalized whether it's due to sexual orientation, religious preference, or uh, being a visible, mi visible minority, etc. But in this case, um, it's a film that employs the redhead angle that he used in that MIA video to great effect. Um, the film opens up essentially uh, with the same tone that I'd gotten from the trailer, very ominous. It's kind of got this ominous piano, much like Kubrick had used in some of his films, specifically, I guess, Eyes Wide Shut, those few keys that he had used. Uh, and it opens with a lot of industrial buildings. and. I think one of the first things that grabs me with this film is this isn't, and, and they kind of talked about it afterwards, was this isn't Paris, this isn't uh, south of France where we're used to seeing a lot of films, this uh, is northern France, it's more industrial, um, 
a lot of flat plains. It's just, it's not the France that we know. Um, so it, right away you kind of get a, a sense that uh, Gavis is going for something a little bit different here with, uh, with his film. So the first character we're introduced to, and it should be said that uh, Cassell plays a psychoanalyst or a therapist of sorts who really is completely indifferent to um, his patients to the point where, you know, and I guess a darkly common moment, comic moment, what happens is uh, one of his patients is kind of, she's crying about uh, some family stuff and you see him looking in his lap at his desk and he's got a bag of chips that he's somewhat discreetly trying to close, I guess, or open, and he's eating the chips with her present, and uh, again, it's got, I guess, kind of a comic moment, uh, so I'm drinking coffee, um, that kind of, I guess, outlines what he's all about, and then it cuts to the the, uh, the young co-star, uh, gosh, I wish I could remember his name, he was in um, Shaitan, actually, he was the boy in Shaitan, Nathaniel... No, that's not... Anyway, I'll get off it. Um, so we see he's a young guy. Maybe, I would guess, about 18, 19. And um, he's playing soccer with his uh, his team. And you kind of get a, a moment right away that you understand he really is an isolated guy, an outsider. Because when the team scores a goal, you can see him kind of running towards a few of his teammates and they're kind of ignoring him. And he keeps kind of doing this kind of darting back and forth thing where there's really no reception from any of his teammates. So he's on the team, but it's kind of only about based on the fact that he wears the jersey. There's no camaraderie or, or anything of that nature for him. And, and, and I can also tell, I mean, right away in these early moments of the film that Gavis, who I think uh, prior to his uh, commercial work, also did some photography, and it's it's on display here. It's a very well-shot and well-framed film. Um, so that, you know, certainly it puts me at ease a little bit that, if nothing else, it's going to be a well-composed film uh, from a technical standpoint. Um another thing that kind of jumps out early on and it also I'm going to apologize up front uh, I've recorded I've written a lot of my notes for these films in the dark because I didn't want to get um, busted with a pen light again and get into it with someone so I was reading in the, writing in the dark which um, probably isn't my strongest suit in life I would say so anyway we see the there's a situation early on in the film um and what kind of becomes uh, a consistent pattern is uh, the boy's character meets Casella's character, and um, Casella's character is constantly spurring him on, uh, for, you know, forcing him into awkward, usually violent situations um, that the boy, you know, really doesn't want a part of at first. He's trying to, I guess, uh, use the boy sort of as a, for his own amusement, I guess, more than anything. And the boy, uh, in essence, it kind of is going to burst him out of his shell. So we see they're in a cafe, and there's these three uh, Arabic men in there, and there's a bit of an aside about uh, Arabs and, and about uh, Algeria, and, and it seems to, as we've talked about before on the show, the the situation with the Arabic population seems to somehow be inescapable, and in even genre films, Martyrs, it's referred to, with the two uh, leads being uh, of mixed origin. Um, there's some Arabic characters in Inside. They talk about the riots that were going on there a few years back, so we can really see that it is something that, even if it's just in one or two scenes, it's, it's brought up in a, in a myriad of films that, uh, you know, really have a lot of different things to say. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we can kind of see as the film gets going here, the stakes are going to get higher and higher and higher uh, with Cassell spurring this boy on, and you kind of get the sense that this isn't going to end well for someone. It's just you don't see how, it, at this point, it's going to 
be kind of tiptoeing through the tulips. So, we see that, but another thing we see that I have to know that was a very pleasant surprise for me was a bottle of JMB. It seems that JMB is alive and well in northern France, so good to see that, of course. I would not be doing my duty if I didn't bring that up. Um, we also kind of see that, I guess, as much as Cassell's indifferent about a lot of things, he does tend to hate everyone uh, equally. Um, he hates Jews, he hates Arabs, he hates uh, everyone, really. And you kind of see that there's moments when he kind of gets over the boiling point himself where he can't help but let his, um, his demeanor slip and the mask slip and he kind of goes on rants with people. Um, and... You know, what was funny, getting back to the JMB for a moment, is about a minute after the JMB spotting, it was only too fitting that there's kind of a live like a cop, die like a man moment where Cassell and the boy <laughs> are riding uh, together on a dirt bike, kind of with arms around the waist. I, I of course, immediately thought of the uh, mighty duo of uh, Ray Lovelock and Mark Perel in, uh, in the Yadada film. So, anyway, um, moving along, we kind of see, too, that with the boy, you know, he, he's 18, 19, and you know, reasonably sheltered life uh, because of his lack of social activities. Um, he lives in a home where he's got a sister he doesn't get along with. His mother's kind of indifferent to everything. So we kind of see that the boy's trying to find his footing in this dynamic of and sort of the friendship he has with Cassell or the, 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 under the tutelage or whatever sort of relationship it is. And you kind of get the sense that Cassell's character is going to really be like a Rubik's Cube for the boy. He can't quite figure it out. It keeps kind of shifting and changing and he can't quite find his footing um, it should also be said that kind of throughout this film one thing they use uh, the Gavis uses to pretty good effect is music like he kind of uses it again he's kind of got a, a darkly comedic observant tone about a lot of the films he does or, uh, about a lot of the stuff he does uh, specifically obviously in this film um and I think another theme that kind of comes up a lot that we, we've seen in the film is is apathy or just indifference in general. Um, there's a moment when, uh, you know, things are escalating and uh, Cassell and the boy are in the gun store. And they're talking about how many people they could kill with this gun or that gun. And it kind of cuts a few times, not to the point where it kind of bangs you over the head, but once or twice it cuts to the uh, the gun store uh, owner or the, the shopkeeper. And he just, just blanks late. I mean, you know, normally you think when you hear someone talking about what basically this, this gun will do to human flesh and bone, it would kind of be cause for you to say, you know what, I think maybe it's uh, not a good chance I sell you anything. Um, but he's just extremely indifferent, and I think that's... It's something that we see a lot as indifference. Uh, if it's not indifference, it's it's outright anger towards uh, certain groups in society. Um, so they finally decide on a weapon, or we said the boy decides on a weapon, and he decides on a crossbow. And of course, those of you that uh, watch enough films know that crossbows no, don't normally have a happy ending um, for certain characters in a film. So. He takes his crossbow, which it should be said is really not the most discreet of weapons. It's not like, um, again, he can put in his boot or, or in his back or anything to that effect uh, very easily. So, unless he's wearing a blanket, I guess, um, as a cape, and then maybe he could, but even still, it just the jig's up very quickly with the crossbow. Um, 
Another thing visually that I think Everest does well is, and I think this kind of ties in with the whole indifference and the anonymity of, um, of I guess, people and uh, the way culture is kind of going is uh, we get a lot of shots of um, early on of the industrial kind of smokestacks and then it kind of goes to these electrical towers and he kind of he shoots them really low to the ground so they kind of got this, this faceless kind of looming feel to them um, I mean that's kind of the feeling I got whether that's that was intentional or not or he just kind of shot them because he liked the way they look I don't know I mean I can only interpret it the way I interpret it which is as I said that way um, there's this moment there's this character in the film that even in the Q&A afterwards Gavard's kind of said he didn't quite understand why she was there um, but she was there and that's uh, throughout their kind of uh, mishaps and adventures uh, what they do is they, they stumble onto this um, this young red-headed girl probably eight or nine years old dressed sort of I'm not Victorian she's kind of got one of those a frilly kind of dress on and she's in this hotel they go to and I guess they feel a, a kinship uh, because of the gingerness and um, she kind of tags along with them and not really anything said there's never, never anything said but I think it's just kind of this uh, unsaid thing I mean you know like they, they care, share that uh, that common bond of being redhead so um, sorry hang on here we go here's the first mishap speaking of which with my nose oh right right okay so there's some, th some things in the film that kind of just happen that again they don't necessarily feel this is in the end you know not to paint with too broad a brush but this is a, to me a very European thing sometimes things are inserted in films strictly for the visual flair or just to give it a, a bit of a, a you know a mood or a feel and I think that's kind of the vibe you get with the girl because there's a scene when it's kind of waffled back and forth if the boy is homosexual, if, uh, you know, what's going on, and you kind of sort of think, well, what's Cassell's endgame here? And you can see that they get these three um, English-speaking girls who, it must be said, are very healthy. Uh, they, every scene they have in the film is topless. Um, but you can see the, the young redhead girl kind of looking on in disdain because she's sitting in the corner in a chair as Cassell was kind of engaging in this debauchery, and, and she kind of just... this this look of disdain on her face uh, you know and I guess it's one of those things that really is open to interpretation in terms of what she's feeling is it just kind of disgusted that it's not a redhead is it because he's selling himself with these harlots I mean is that even a word anyone uses nowadays or did I just age myself uh, about 50 years um, but again it's one of those things I think that, that in the hands of a good filmmaker instead of seeming muddled it just it forces you to kind of ask questions about um what a character's thinking or feeling. Um, now, this is a film that certainly features something for the ladies too. We do get some Cassell dong in this, and in fact, it was weird. I had an, in, in, I guess, true GGTMC fashion. I had a, a kind of a run where the first two films I covered uh, featured dong and incredibly awkward, uncomfortable masturbation scenes from men. So. Uh, and, but there's also actually another thing but there's, there's been a few most of the films I've seen have had masturbation of some sort that's pretty impressive um, <laughs> so anyway get some Casal Dong for the ladies and another thing that I kind of feel I think maybe it's a bit of a rail against consumerism is we kind of we see 
sort of in the background, but they are kind of acknowledged by the actors in the films, and that's the fact that we see these absurd ads for whether it's a car rental place, and it's kind of the guy with a hat on and a suit, and you know, these kind of really ridiculous-looking um, consumerist kind of uh, ads that really look stupid, I guess, uh, you know. Uh, but anyway, back to the Kassal Dong and back to the, the masturbation scene. There, there's a sequence which you'll hear me talk about later on. I think is really fantastically realized. So, like I said, things keep getting ramped up, ramped up, ramped up, uh, and more awkward until there's a moment when uh, Kassal is heavily intoxicated, and what he does is... Uh, there's a, they're in the hotel, and there's a jacuzzi in the hotel, and he stands over this couple, um, and he proceeds to piss in the pool. Now, you would think that the couple, or the guy feeling chivalrous or, you know, something, would get up and would, um, you know, do something. And we see that there's a reason he does, and that's because behind him on the stationary bike is the boy with the fucking crossbow pointed at them, and he's building up a rhythm on this bike, and the crossbow, and the piss, and it kind of gets into this really fantastic rhythm where the tension is building, and the bike's speeding up, and his piss stream is getting harder, and and the couple, and then it cuts, and you see there's a wheelchair, so you one of them's in a wheelchair, so you know that's going to shackle them, because if one gets out, the other one could slip, and, you know, it just, it create it brings it to a really good boiling point, and then it just stops. Um... But, it, it, again, it was just a really well-done scene, I think, really well-realized and well-edited, uh, for what it's worth. Um, I want to talk about the sound design for a moment, too, in this film. You know, usually when you get high-quality films, they're not they're not marred by sound, and this is no exception. It's really well-done. There's moments where, after being redheads, uh, they decide that they're going to just take all their hair and eyebrows off. It's not really said why. Again, it's one of those things that you have to kind of work through yourself. Um... But the boy does it last, and he's kind of desperate to do it. And what he does is um, he gets some hair removal cream, and he, put, he puts fucking goops of it in his hair, and he gets a, a plastic Bic disposable razor. And he's really forcefully trying to remove his hair, and you can hear that, like, the, the razor on the scalp. And it just, it's brutal. Like you can just, you can almost feel the little pieces of flesh uh, getting caught underneath that razor. It's, it's again, it's a... A pretty brutal scene, and even the punches, the gunshots, everything in this, I think, gives you the intended effect, which, you know, uh, certainly helps. Um, these two men proceed to do what has to be the worst wedding crash in the history of cinema, so they're going through this small town, again, northern France still, and what happens is they're uh, in a stolen car, a Porsche. Hmm. They did pay for it, my apologies. They crash this fucking... Porsche into the front of a church as the couple's coming out for after they've just exchanged their wedding vows. They crash the car immediately. Castell tries to get in a fight with a few of the men, and I mean they, you know, obviously very upset. They start to kick the shit out of them until um, Captain Crossbow comes and he's pointing it at them, and then they they just end up forcing a bunch of different men to French kiss and to do ridiculous things, and it's just essentially to humiliate them and, and you know, it just uh, clearly that uh, is the worst wedding crash in the history of cinema. So, anyway, those are kind of all my notes. Um, I think this is probably the first time I've done a solo recording and I have to say, as I've always suspected it would be, I think it, it can be very challenging because um, you're not bouncing things off someone. And, uh, you know, to the, the Terry Frosts and the Ian Lorings and the Metal Mikeys of the world, I salute you. 
because, and of course the um, uh, Andy Trifon box of the world, I, I salute you. This is not uh, easy to do, even for someone who loves to talk as much as I do. So anyway, uh, let me get into my maker breaks, etc. Maker break scene for this is the hot tub. Um, that sequence, like I said, is really wonderfully realized. It kind of has everything with some of the sound design of the whirring of the stationary bike, um, the piss in the water, the, the cross-cutting between all the characters involved in the scene, and just kind of the, it really brings it to a pretty good boiling point. Um, my MVT for the film is Cassell, uh, as always. Cassell is one of these guys, I love that he is a huge film star, um, because he's not what's conventionally thought of as an attractive man. Um, yet he's married to Monica Bellucci and makes incredibly interesting films and I think he has a charisma and an intensity that is, is rare in cinema nowadays so uh, he of course brings it again uh, in this one and my four, score for the film is a 7.5 out of 10 I have to be honest I was a little bit let down with this one because the trailer really looked like the film was going to be extremely transgressive and violent and not to say I had a bloodlust, I didn't but I think they kind of cut it one way, and it led me to believe things, especially the way the film started, that they were going to go a certain way, which it in turn didn't. So a little bit of wind got taken out of my sails in that way, and I know that kind of sounds worse than it is, but it's just because, again, the expectations I had from the trailer. I mean, you put an air raid in your fucking... an air raid sign in your trailer, usually it's, it's a sign of, you know, impending doom. So all in all, though, pretty good film i would recommend everyone see everyone see it because i think with gavras we really do have a very very talented young filmmaker who has a pedigree and is going to continue working with he's involved in this collective um of artists and filmmakers that i think they're constantly going to challenge each other and i think we're going to see someone who's maybe not quite as nihilistic or bleak as as no way but if he continues on the same path you know could be right there alongside him and leading this kind of transgressive French new wave that I think a lot of uh, a lot of our listeners and, and certainly your hosts uh, love a great deal. So, anyway, that's uh, that's what I got to say. I'm going to jump off for a moment here, and uh, we'll be back very shortly with some 22nd of May. Are you looking for a way to connect with people who like the things that you like? Whether it's music, movies, TV, or whatever you're into, head on over to the Palaver.com forums. Yes, yes, but, but forums and message boards, boards are elitist and archaic. Well, yeah, maybe if you're an asshole. Palaver.com is home to all your favorite podcasts. So why not head over there now? Start talking about all the things you want to talk about. That's Palaver.com. P-A-L-A-V-R.com. All right, uh, welcome back to... Uh, the next review in the GGTMC's coverage of TIFF. Uh, the next film on the agenda for me was the 22nd of May, which uh, I can't remember the filmmaker's name. I want to say Fortier or Cartier. I believe it was a French... Uh, God, I, you know, I really... I'm going to get exposed as a fraud here with uh, without the internet to uh, bail me out, but uh, he is a, a Belgian filmmaker who has risen to reasonably uh, high acclaim because of his debut film, X Drummer. Uh, this is one I heard about, I believe, through Twitch a couple years ago. I still haven't seen it, um, but I'd heard a lot of good things from a lot of good people. I know in talking to the Uncool Cat, he is a big fan of it, so I'm going to have to seek it out. Um, 
it might be one we may cover at some point on the show. We'll have to see how it goes, but he's a filmmaker that I think showed a lot of promise. Um, and the film really seemed to, to have a pretty strong following. So with that in mind, I'd watched the trailer for 22nd of May, and really what this film is about is it's about an apolitical um, bombing in a mall in Belgium. Um, and the film really revolves around the central character who is the uh, the mall security guard. Um, kind of his life, and it is essentially a metaphysical film that deals with ghosts and flashbacks and a lot of other things. Um, and in fact, I believe a lot of the principles from X Drummer are in this film, uh, from what the director had said. So this film isn't Flemish, which is uh, an interesting language to say the least. Um, it, to me, really seems like a combination of English, French, and uh, maybe German, something to that effect. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's a Flemish film. I think it might be one of the first Flemish films I've ever seen, for that matter. So um, anyway, I mean, we can kind of see right away when the film opens. It's uh, it's kind of got that over-the-shoulder technique that Van Sant uses a little bit. Um, specifically, you know, Elephant comes to mind, things of that nature. Um, that Aronofsky actually favors. A lot of people use, and, and when it's used well, I think it's great because you kind of get that intimate bird's eye view of um, someone's day-to-day uh, routine and that's really what this is we kind of see the guy wakes up and he's brush, he lights a smoke he kind of drags himself out of bed he brushes his teeth he's you know getting his coffee and his thermos for work off he goes and it's it's immediately very engaging uh, again because it's just again it's very very well done and one of the things I find fascinating is whenever I watch a film from a country I'm not overly familiar with beyond sort of a broad very broad-brushed kind of perspective um, is to see the architecture and just to kind of see things uh, that seem to be cultural quirks and otherwise. Um, this film right away, despite at this point only having the interior of a high-rise apartment building, is very, very distinctly European. I mean, it just doesn't look like a North American um, building. And it kind of has this sickly yellow feel, um, like nicotine-stained and wood tie, faux wood tiling and that really kind of pale yellow that, that seemed to dominate a lot of uh, a lot of buildings and stuff in the, in the 70s you know when the, the fall colors the olives and the rusts and all these were, were really predominant in uh, automobiles and uh, in, in architecture specifically of course uh, residential buildings um, but it's kind of got that this palette throughout most of the film and it's, it looks really good um, for the film uh, I think because it's not a palette that's used very much. It's, you know, usually get your your blacks and whites or your vivid colors, but it's, I love that kind of sickly look that this film carries on. And again, I think, you know, you kind of see right away that this opening sequence with the, the central character in the film, Sam is his name in the film, is probably about a 10-minute sequence where it, it's just, like I said, it's his morning routine, and he's kind of putting around, getting ready, and there's no dialogue. I mean, he's by himself. There, there's not this need for exposition like, oh, gee, I, you know, you get the thought bubble and he kind of says, oh, well, I, I could use my coffee or, you know, i got to take a dump or, you know, I had my coffee, now I need to take a dump, which normally I would imagine happens to most of us. Um, but it, it just, it, again, it did really engaging early on with, with just his routine and um, 
so anyway, he kind of gets off to work, and you know, he's he's going to work, and just he just you can kind of get that sense. He's got that yeah physicality, kind of slumped over, and he, he's kind of resigned to a pretty downtrodden life from the from what you can see. And it, again, it does that thing well that it forces the viewer to ask questions of the character and to kind of paint a history for the character based on the little observations they've seen, things in the apartment or his um, his kind of physical mannerisms. And, you know, so he, and I must say that as he steps out of his apartment, uh, it's it's a really stunning shot because it, it's these apartments that, again, you only see, in, it seems like in Europe, where it's a pretty cramped apartment. And then what he does is the camera's really tight. It's almost on his shoulder and he opens this door and it's just it is this wonderful expanse where it's just sky it's almost like he's got about two feet from his front door for this really narrow uh concrete walkway and and balcony of sorts that overlooks the rest of uh the city and it's really well done like it it's incredible how and you'll see that a lot in this film there's a lot of moments where doors are opened up and it leads you somewhere else, or it it's it leads you to something incredibly expansive like this, where, like I said, it would go from a, a cramped bachelor apartment to this the expanse of an entire city done seamlessly yet instantly. Um, so anyway, Sam gets to work, and you kind of see, you know, there, there's the usual people, maybe the, the shopkeepers, the women that work at the boutiques, uh, delivery men, people he kind of sees in his day to day that, um, that he you know he acknowledges they have that that friendly kind of. Um, very arm's reach small time small talk hey so we kind of see that and um again he's just kind of slumped over and his day is going on and, and then it happens I mean, we get this explosion and this explosion i mean i wasn't in like one of these theaters that that's overly built for sound but i mean i'm not lying this explosion absolutely rattled my sternum i mean it again it's one of those things i think You'll hear me talk about this a lot. I, you know, I just talked about it with Our Day Will Come, and that's when you get a good filmmaker, they tend to use everything at their disposal, whether it's sound design, whether it's production design, whether it's dialogue, cinematography, whatever it is. I mean, that's when you really get the stew going with all the good, good ingredients, and that's what really, I think, you know, we see at work here uh, with this. I mean, the explosion, you really feel it, and not only do you feel it, but you see it, and... I think in hindsight, this film was shot in like four weeks for like, you know, I, I don't know what the number, I mean, it was just a ridiculously low number. Um, something that, you know, if shot uh, in North America would, would probably, that sequence alone, guy, I don't even know, I mean, it would, you know, 40, 50, I don't know, I mean, a lot of money, a lot of money would have went into it, and it's it, it's a really, as a lot, this film is a lot, it's very tactile in a way, I mean, you can almost taste the dust in your mouth and the smoke and the debris that's hurtling around and at this point we only really see the um the explosion because sam's standing in the doorway to the mall and we only really see it from his perspective which is uh it the, the blast kind of uh storms in from behind him and kind of knocks him forward and so what he does is of course you know he, he stumbles down from the impact and and at this point, he, he's trying to going, go in the building to save a few people, as many as he can, really. I mean, you know, it's not like he just breezes like a, you know... Which, let's be honest, most people would do. I, I like to think I certainly wouldn't do that. And, I, you know, I know I wouldn't do that, but I think there's... 
there's that, that instant or that urge you have to fight, no matter who you are, to run at a moment like that. You know, you get this loud, deafening noise and this destruction. It's, it's almost human instinct. But he goes in the building, and, and it's not done with, you know, you know, on a white steed. I mean, it's just, if anything, I mean, you kind of really feel not only his terror and his confusion, but the scene itself, again, it's just wonderfully realized and immerses you in how disorienting it is among amidst the, the smoke and the fire and the dust and the rubble and it, it really gives you chills because it'll it's kind of shot in tight and it's one of those things where you almost get claustrophobic and the camera's kind of swinging around a bit and you're, you're hearing screams and you're seeing uh, kind of glimpses of twisted limbs and and it's it's just it's a really really wonderfully realized sequence um through the I don't even wow this note this next note it looks like it says oi oiling through the yes through the gas I don't know that's terrible this is one I clearly wrote in the dark. Um, so then he kind of gets out of the building. And at this point, he's pulled through, I don't know, it'd have to be about three or four bodies out. And we see at this point now, he's confronted by this young mother. And she says, you know, why didn't you save us? You know, why didn't you stop the bomber? You looked at him as he went by. He went in right before me. I, I knew that he... There's something off about him, and it's your job to protect us. And why didn't you? And you failed us all. You failed all of us in the building. And and he says, no, I didn't see anything. And really what we see is the film starting to unfold here now is, although it's primarily from the perspective of Sam, it almost has kind of this, this metaphysical kind of spiritual world Rashomon feeling where we see the films from all the different perspectives of the characters and we kind of see uh, some of them with their motivation some of them with their history and I'll kind of touch on those more specifically as we go but we see her chastising him and not to the point where she's shrieking and it's it's you know over the top it's it's really more of a, a sad mournful kind of um, confrontation I mean when the wind's kicking up that's just going to do wonders for sound quality um it's a great moment, and you know, and she says, "Why didn't?" And then she said, pauses, and she says, "Why didn't you save my child?" And you know, it just it again, it kind of further punctuates everything, uh, you know, when she says that. And and this is when the score really starts to um, work its wonder in the film, and it's a really fantastic score. It's kind of got this again, kind of this haunting spare electric slide guitar that you you you'd see in spaghetti westerns, which would seem really out of place in like this this Belgian mall cop metaphysical movie, but again, I mean, it's it's just used to wonderful, uh, wonderful effect. Um, and it kind of comes back, and, you know, when it needs to, and I'm sure I'll bring it up again here. Um, I gotta say, you know, the cinematography in this film at times would probably even make Argento jealous. I mean, the way this camera swirls around at times, and it get, it'll get in tight, and then it kind of loops around and swirls around, and it's never it never feels showy. It always feels relevant, and always feels uh, required. I mean, it, it's just you know sometimes you kind of get that sense when you're watching a filmmaker that things are being done strictly to be showy, and it's not so much here. Um, it's just a really good filmmaker who who knows what he's doing. Um, again, you know, talking about the tactile interiors, you kind of feel like there's moments in the film when you're in kind of rundown buildings and. 
it um, you, you see paint peeling and you kind of almost you're almost listening to hear more like wallpaper kind of peeling off and cracking and it's really I think it, it, it kind of immerses you well in, in the in the confines of the buildings it's in and and the film things that it um, you know all, all the architecture and everything it really does a good job of that um, oh. So, you know, as we see, there's characters proceeding to kind of confront him, and, and they're talking about their day, and what led them up to that moment in their day, and we see this bearded man, glorious beard, I might add, and of course he's wearing the corduroy blazer, so bonus points for that. Um, he talks about how he saw the woman of his dreams, he, he saw her ten years ago, he didn't make a move, and he regrets not making a move and, and then he saw her again in the store and he went and saw her and you're kind of thinking oh this is kind of a sweet little story until you realize that what the guy has been doing is he's married and he would go he has this routine where he would go to the mall and uh, it was a woman's uh, undergarment store shall we say and he would go into the stores take a pair of the women's underwear <laughs> it's, it sounds I shouldn't laugh this is going to sound crass and insensitive when I say it I guess just I was so surprised to see it on screen um he would go into the, the change room with a pair of women's underwear and just start furiously masturbating until he blows his load in the fucking underwear. And then as he's walking out, he kind of nonchalantly flips it onto the counter for the, the quote-unquote woman of his dreams. It's like this piece of, this offering of, of his, uh, his um, baby batter. And it, it just, it's a really bizarre moment. But again, like I said, it, it's just... It's insane. We're, we're kind of two for two now with these awkward masturbation sequences. So clearly, the GGTMC will retain its uh, its sheen with with moments like that in films. Um, so yeah, I mean the film kind of goes on, and, and like I said, you really start to feel you know the, this yellows and the sickly yellows and everything. It, it kind of gives it this this oppressive feel without, I guess, being oppressive necessarily. It, it it, it doesn't. It almost feels like it's slowly, like a blanket, slowly being lifted over you, and it's so drab and dreary throughout. And kind of gives, I think, it conveys the, sort of the existence of a lot of these characters. That when uh, the film shifts to a subway sequence, and the the subway is just normal white, it's not like you know neon or anything, and that the the white sheen on the subway is almost too stark. Um, and I don't mean that as a criticism. I just mean it's such a a shift um, from the fucking misery of the yellow we've seen thus far. Um, I gotta say too that this this voice of this uh, this lead actor who played Sam, I think his name's Sam in real life too. If he ever had a great command of the English language, I think this guy uh, could make a fortune in his voiceover work alone. Um, they just got a wonderful voice. He, he's like, I mean, Clancy Brown, eat your heart out. It's just fantastic. Um, and he doesn't speak a lot, so in combination with what he says in his delivery, it, it lends it a lot of weight when he says things. So, you know, I really like that. Um, again, the camera work. There's moments when the film it does these impossibly high kind of overhead shots, and again, they're used to great effect in the film. And it, you know, really, really works well. Um, we get some great interpretations of, of limbo or the kind of that that plane between life and death because that's really what this film is the ghosts of these people or the spirits of these people questioning him about what he did or didn't do and, and it like I said it jumps around between 
flashbacks to their physical self, to the spiritual self, and and I really like this interpretation. It's not something I'd seen really before in film, and I think it's a tricky thing to pull off flashbacks, real time, uh, possible scenarios, and spirits all so seamlessly. I mean, it is a bit puzzling, but it's done well enough that you know what's going on. Um, you know, I, I talked about earlier, whatever the, the director's name is, how he employs noise to great effect. Well, this is a guy that employs silence to great effect, too, to the point where, you know, as the cliched saying would go, silence is deafening. There's times when it absolutely is in this film, and, and actually, you know, i got to mention this now. I meant to mention in the beginning. Oh, fucking phenomenal from a technical standpoint. When this blast first happens... And, uh, and Sam runs in the building. He's clearly been deafened by the noise. And it's done so incredibly well where he's in that building for about maybe two minutes and just in the, in the chaos and confusion. And his, his sound or his hearing slowly, slowly, slowly starts to come back to him from that kind of muffled, you know, when you get your ears under the bath, in the bath water, you're kind of laying down in the bathtub. Um, it's kind of got that feel until it gets perfectly clear again, and it's done, like I said, very slowly, very gradually, very patiently, but it's just done so well. Um, so, yeah, I, again, I just I wanted to bring that up because it, it really is it's one of those things that, you know, you'd think that's kind of a throwaway thing to a lot of people, but when you see a lot of, uh, a lot of different things on display from this guy, from a technical standpoint, that are done really well... Um, there's a moment, I still don't know quite how they did it, if it was an editing thing or just the construction of, of a closet. But like I said, there's moments when um, tight spaces opened up into rather expansive opening, uh, opening opened wide open spaces. Uh, but there's also a moment when a character goes into a closet and they're fumbling around in the closet and they come out of the closet into, I can't remember now if it was another building or where they were, but they weren't in a closet anymore and I have to think you know my brain's kind of you know because I think a lot of us do that how did they do that how did they do the woman with the steak uh, through her ass not her mouth in cannibal holocaust and how did they do this and, and and I don't need anyone to write in and say how they did that I know there was a unicycle <laughs> employed for that uh, but anyway just to use that as an example I mean I'm trying to rack around my brain how did they pull this off what did they do and I have to think that maybe the, the blackness aided them in, in editing that scene seamlessly but anyway um, it's really flawlessly done um, the film kind of, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really take, a, I guess, too much of a stance on what the afterlife means or is. I think it's just an interpretation, but I think it kind of, one thing it does kind of say, I think it's a fairly concrete statement, is that history is written in pen, not pencil, um, because there's moments when there's realizations made by the characters uh, about what's happened, and desperation sits in clicks or sets in and they, they're trying to change the events that have already happened and they see it it's it's useless there's no point it's written that's it it's done um but anyway so now this is what really brings me to kind of the uh the crown jewel uh, of the film um we relive the explosion from inside the building this time I've seen a lot of films. I've seen a lot of film sequences that have really floored me and, and really knocked me on my ass. This is not hyperbole. This last sequence in this film is one of the most stunning things I have ever seen in a film. It's person by person, their account of the explosion. We see bodies flying. We see there's a moment with the woman with the, the child in the crib. It's, it's almost one of those old-style cribs with, like, the... Um, 
the stretched cotton hood on the uh, bassinet with the uh, almost like an old 70s style crib that you see, you know, in like Rosemary's Baby or something. Um, you see this flaming crib just hurtling like a fucking asteroid through a store window. We see everyone kind of flying around. There's debris flying. There's chunks of everything flying. There's, you know, uh, store displays are just, I mean, everything's getting just absolutely destroyed. And, you know, the rocks and the dust and everything else. And, and like I said, it just really does feel like an asteroid in space because it's done in really, really, really slow motion. I think he said a thousand frames. I want to say a second, but that sounds impossibly fast, and I'm going to look like an idiot, so I'm going to say a thousand frames a minute. I don't know, but whatever it was, um, it, it just was unbelievable. Um, and like I said, that, that scene's punctuated by everyone's last words. Um, I got to say now, you know, I talked about the guy who, who beats off into the women's underwear in the change room. This guy must have had something in his contract, because this poor bastard... The explosion happens when he's in the change room beating off. So what happens is, this is an extremely slow motion. We see the bra starts to lift him. His pants are around his ankles. This guy's floating up like he's in an anti-gravity room. His cock is just flapping around like a cloud on a, a day with a slight breeze. I mean, you know, if I was this guy, I would have put two things in my contract for this film. One, I have a fluffer pre the filming of this scene. And two, the room must be 75 degrees Fahrenheit at a minimum. I mean, this poor bastard's cock is on screen in slow motion for the whole world to see for probably about a minute as he's kind of floating through space. Uh, you know, I mean, anyway, you know, I'm kind of digressing, but it just, uh, again, I thought it was great that we had two awkward masturbation and cock shots uh, in, two to, in, in two films. Um, but really, you know, that, that kind of ends the film. I mean, that's kind of the last sequence. But I think in between what we see is, as the threads kind of connect or come together, we see that there's one event in, in Sam's life that's kind of shaped or shifted the way he felt. And I think what, what I think a lot of these great filmmakers talk about is how there's a really tragic ripple effect um, from the past that can just alter the lives. How, how I think how fragile human life is because I think that's talked about in Irreversible and To the Void those are two No Way films that I think do it to great effect um, in this one it goes to show that you know if this guy had been more alert uh, and he had been paying attention over something that happened 10 years ago or 20 years ago maybe he would have noticed something and everyone would have still been alive and it wouldn't have impacted the children and the parents and the co-workers and just how fragile human life can be so anyway really well well done uh, my make or break is the last thing in this film. Like I said, I this is a buy. I'm going to buy this when it comes out on DVD. Um, whether it's you know region two, region one, whatever it is, uh, it's just a fantastic scene. It's worth the price of admission alone. My MVT is the director. You know, I had a chance to ask him afterwards about um, shooting that sequence and you know challenges he had and, and a lot of other questions from the audience in terms of budget and time. I think he shot the whole film in like four weeks, and it was like. A, I mean, peanuts budget, like, you know, a million or two million bucks. Uh, and a lot of people worked for free or on the cheap. Um, and it just really made me lament at the bloat. And I don't want to, I've said this before, I don't want to be the guy that rails against Hollywood, but the bloat in Hollywood, the excess, the, the fat that really needs to get trimmed. Because if you can make a film this stunning and this, this moving and stunning with a couple of million, do you really need, you know, four million bucks for crash services? I mean, come on. You know, it just, it's ridiculous. 
Um, my MVT is the director, like I said, to bring all this together. Hats off to him. My score for the film is um, brr, 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 an 8.75. Highly recommend this film. Um, so yeah, that's that. We'll be right back uh, with another review very soon, and that will be John Carpenter's The Ward. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call the gentleman at 206-666-5207. And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com. 